I, I don't know if you want to edit that out and just have me start over again or. <laughs> Welcome to Tech Tales. I'm here with Cody. Hello, everybody. Hello. And today we're going to do part two of the road to OSX, where we're looking at the very long history that Apple took to develop the modern Macintosh operating system. Uh, it's It's been a while since we recorded the first episode. I mean, I have literally forgotten everything. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay, that's fine. I wrote a summary here. If you haven't listened to the last episode, you should go do that because it was really interesting, even though Cody forgot it all. I think it's interesting. Basically, this started in 1988 when a team of engineers inside of Apple started to work on a new operating system for the Macintosh completely from scratch because the existing Mac OS was, it had a lot of bugs, wasn't very stable. It wasn't growing to accommodate the new hardware that was going in Macs. So they thought we, they needed a clean break. The team wanted to ship the new operating system by 1989. That did not happen because the project wasn't very well managed. Uh, eventually, in 1991, the operating system division was spun out as its own company called Taligent, which worked with Apple, IBM, and Motorola. Taligent's goal was to develop a application environment, which would run all these cool modern apps on a variety of platforms. However, in 1995, Taligent ended plans to release its own operating system because they thought that since the platform they were building would work on all of them, there wasn't really a point to make its own, which is true. But then Apple was once again in this position where they didn't have a modern operating system. And it was now almost 10 years after the project had started, and they really needed it 10 years ago. Yeah. So after Taligent ended plans to develop its own operating system, Apple started a new plan to gradually update the Mac operating system. The first update they planned was called Copeland, and it would have interface improvements. It would have built-in multitasking because the current OS just had, sort of had like multitasking duct taped on top. and It didn't work well. Uh, it would have a new file system, and it would have protected memory. Also important was that it would have backwards compatibility with existing Mac apps through an environment called the Blue Box. And Apple hoped to release a beta by the end of 1995, and then there would be a full commercial release in 1996. The second update they planned was called Gershwin, and that would complete the transition to this new modern platform with preemptive multitasking. And they hoped that would be done by 1996. Uh, the the great aspirations of deadlines. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> like the you know the new OS was also supposed to ship in 1989, <laughs> <laughs> so it's fine. Just keep making new deadlines. So I have a YouTube video for you, which is an episode of the Computer Chronicles from PBS from October 1995. I like how Corbin told me about this video and kept holding back sending me the link until just now. Yeah, I have to keep the suspense. Three, 
two, one, go. Hi, and welcome to the Computer Chronicles. I'm Stuart Chaffee. If you're a Machead, you might like this little button, if you can see it here. It says Windows 95 equals Macintosh 89. Yes, the Mac operating system has been doing long file names, plug and play, drag and drop, all that stuff for many years. But Apple is not standing still. With the competition now coming from Windows 95, Apple's about to launch its own new operating system, codenamed Copeland. This is the first major upgrade to the Mac OS in many years, and here to give us a sneak preview of the Mac OS that'll be coming out in 96 is Adam Samuels of Apple Computer. Welcome, Adam. Thanks. Uh, real quickly, in a nutshell, what's going to be new about Copeland? The big improvements in Copeland are really focused on two things. One is improving people's productivity. We want people to be more efficient. We want them to get more accomplished in less time. And the second is giving them a way to take advantage of the performance of the PowerPC chip. So Copeland is going to do a lot to help in that area. All right, you've got a lot of stuff to show us. So I want to just let you roll and show us as many of the new features of Copeland as you can now. Okay, thanks. First of all, one of the things we recognize is there's a lot that people would like to do with the Macintosh today. They want to be able to make multiple copies. They want to be able to empty the trash. They even want to be able to open an application and have that all happen simultaneously. So you were doing three things at once there. Right. And I also want to be able to switch between them and keep track of the progress. So we now have a whole new level of multitasking available in Copeland, and we think that is going to help people's efficiency dramatically. Mm -hmm. Our users have many different levels of experience, and some of them even share the same computer. Right. So Copeland will give people the way to set up private kind of areas to work on the system that basically give information that's appropriate to each user's level and needs. So here I have a system that's button-based, very easy to use, with a limited number of menu selections. I have a couple of other examples here. Here's one of more of an intermediate user, who, as you see, has the traditional files and folders. For an advanced user, we even give the capability to put in a password to protect access. And then we have the full richness of the Macintosh experience available here. And this is one way that people can customize their computer. A second way, though, is they can actually alter the appearance of the machine to better fit their own style mm -hmm. and personality. So in this case, this user has an alternate theme that they're going to select, and the computer will basically update to show this whole new theme. And what's great is this is not just something you see at the desktop. If you so open the applications app will follow the themes. Yes, and I'll show you. Clarisworks here does just that. Uh -huh. And what's really exciting is you can combine these. So, for example, if you're a child, you could set up a, an environment that had a very simple user interface, but a very fun and attractive theme. So let me show that here. We've got button-based, very appealing. We've even added new sound Perfect for kids, yeah. and animation. And we think this will keep people excited and looking at the computer on an ongoing basis. The new Mac OS due out 1996 sometime. Yes, that's right. Adam, thank you very much. Thanks, Stuart. I love that the start of this demo, it <laughs> the start of this demo is literally just, let's show you three progress bars going at once. <laughs> I know. I mean... When, when you're trying to do like coding examples, like just showing off a UI that has like multiple threads running simultaneously, this, yeah. this would be your way of doing it. We're just going to start yeah. one progress bar and down here we're going to create another UI container and that's going to have a progress bar. And also, I mean, if, if somebody showed you this as sort of a backdrop to what you could already do with not Windows 95, but Windows 3.0. You could do this with 3.0 already. Yeah. Like, this is not new. I haven't tried it, but I believe you could do multiple operations in the current macOS at this time, but it was just like, it would probably crash. <laughs> or the system would slow down, because, like again, there was no protected memory, so 
everything you're doing is like using memory from the other app and it's just a very unstable all right to be fair i'm i'm just picking on their first their first what uh five seconds of the demo well austin do you notice that the um title bars on the finder don't actually take up the full window width the title bars on the finder don't oh oh i see uh yeah yeah that that would look pretty weird by today's expectations with this early demo they're very excited about not crashing while doing multiple things (laughs) <laughs> They're very excited about uh, internet searching, and they showed off multi-user support with different levels of difficulty for each user. So if you had a kid, you could stop them from uh, changing some setting accidentally, I guess. And I'll give them credit for that. That's that's a smart idea for a future for a feature. The only yeah. thing is, I've seen it tried for decades and it never works it never works out because inevitably everyone just wants to be on the same the same profile or you you always need a feature from one of the other the other levels and you want to be in like the simpler level because it you know the features that you actually need and use every day are always going to be in one place but the but you always end up like from time to time needing something that's hidden away in one of the others. Yeah. And it's, it's not too helpful for the, uh, the child or, or whoever it, like if, if a child's growing up on the computer and their home computer is in this baby mode and then they, they go to a friend's house or maybe they work on a computer at school and it's on the other level, then they're kind of, they don't might not know what, what to do. Yeah. But to Apple's credit, at least they are, trying really really hard yeah. to be that user-friendly os it was it was definitely forward thinking for 1995 hey, um, yeah besides like the the handful of like there was i think microsoft bob was around this time i think that was like 95 and that was sort of the same idea but everyone hated it uh, with good reason yeah, and then the, that's the last thing they showed off was, of course, the the custom theme support. Well, what's really funny to me about that is when you compare it to phones, smartphones mm-hmm. have only have only really gotten this in the last few years, kind of, and not even yeah. as thoroughly as this. Though to be fair, I do remember an Android. Uh, I certainly remember like modded uh, modded ROMs having this right. type of theming. <laughs> Yeah. So like cool stuff. Like if I was a Mac user back then and and my computer crashed every time I tried to open a Word document and copy text and I saw this, that'd be cool. I'd be excited for it. Well, I think at this point you'd just be excited to see that something's happening. Yeah. Because they have been waiting a really long time. I'm, I'm sure this will completely shock you, Cody. But Apple did not meet its 1995 beta deadline for Copland because uh, of feature bloat. Like, again, the same issue that happened with the earlier operating system project where just everyone wanted to put everything into the new operating system. And no one was there to say we that can wait for the next update, even though, you know, initially they had announced that they had a second update. 
and that some of it would be in that so that they could get this first one out soon. It, those are those are the problems that still exist today. No one's really worked oh, for through sure. that issue. Yeah. Everyone wants everything now. That will I, never change. Yeah, I I honestly for all the contracting jobs I've done, I can't count how many times I've walked in the door, been told, "Here's what we're going to be doing." This this is what our feature or this is what our feature complete is going to look like for some particular milestone. And it never ever sticks. There's always some change that comes along. And sometimes it's reasonable, sometimes it's acceptable. Other times it's like, well, all right. So just so you guys know, uh we're going to we're we're going to be late. Like I'm looking at this list of features the milestone includes and we're, there's no way like whatever whatever you thought was going to be the deadline push it back so in february 1996 um apple gets a new ceo gil emilio and he's brought on mostly to make apple profitable again because at this point apple's just bleeding money they don't have much longer to live Gil Emilio before this, uh, he, he joined the board of directors at Apple in 1994 after he left National Semiconductor. And after he's brought on, he quickly hires a woman named Ellen Hancock as the vice president of engineering who previously worked at IBM and she'd also worked with Emilio at National Semiconductor. So this is someone who he really trusted to get the whole software or um, software division at Apple under control. At WWDC 1996, which was in May of that year, um, Apple talked a lot about Copeland. Uh, at the time, they were calling it Mac OS 8 because the current system was Mac OS 7. There was, of course, after all this had happened, after all this happened, there was a Mac OS 8 that was just a continuation of the earlier system. So that's a little bit confusing if you go back and try to read some articles from this time because they say Mac OS 8. And you're like, is is this is this the the first Mac OS 8 or is this the other Mac OS 8? Well, you know, you've you've got to <laughs> you've got to have consistency for the product you actually release, and you. You have the aspirational version. Yeah. Yeah. The fun part at WADC is that Apple has a demo of Copland. And I'm going to send you uh, a little snippet of a Mac Tech article that was talking about that demo. Ooh. And I will, yeah, for you to read out to the class. There was a hands-on demo of the current state of OS 8. There were tantalizing glimpses of the goodies to come, but the overall experience was awful. It does not yet support text editing, so you couldn't actually do anything except open and view documents. Any dialogue field that needed something typed into it was blank and dead. Also, it was incredibly fragile and crashed repeatedly often corrupting system files on the disk in the process. The demo staff reformatted and rebuilt the hard disks at regular intervals. It was incredible that they even let us see the beast. One thing I discovered is that with this build of the OS, development was difficult. The floppy drive wasn't working under Mac OS 8, so I had to build... I had to build code on my PowerBook, then boot the test machine with System 7.5, 
copy the files from the floppy to the test machine, then reboot the test machine with macOS 8 and run the code. This long process was a limiter on how much I could get done in the time allotted. Okay. Wow. So first off, I've actually heard a little bit of this, but not said this way, that the way that they were updating everything was literally just an in-place overwrite of their system files. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I didn't know that they were technically taking system 7.5, like like installing system 7.5, then then copying the files over. Yeah, this is uh, this is some real janky stuff. There are videos on YouTube where people uh, burn the developer previews to a disk and, and try installing it. And it it does crash all the time. Also, in, in this stage of development, it looks just like the current macOS. Like, there's not a whole lot different to look at besides the like the themes they showed off in that first um, demo. I don't know if that was in the developer preview or not. But yeah, so it was it was rough. At this point, Apple's operating system development was a hot mess, to put it lightly. Copeland was already a year behind schedule, and it was on track to be two years behind schedule. Also, Apple had paused development on System 7, which was the, the current OS that all Mac users were running, and had all those developers work on Copeland. So the new OS was being delayed, and there weren't any updates going out for the existing OS. So if you were a Mac user during this time, you were just getting nothing. There was nothing coming out of Apple for you. In fairness, updates then were not like updates today. Right. You didn't have a thing where you turn on your computer and it pops up and says, hey, we've got updates for you. Like at that time, your way of getting an update was probably go down to a computer store and they had like update discs that they would sell you. So, you know, I that's not the worst worst scenario. You're you're pretty much just being denied the ability to go pay for an update disc. So. And also, by this point, no work at all had started on Gershwin, which was going to be the update after Copeland. Like, just nothing. Also, uh, a little bit later, a July 1996 report in Computer World stated that Copeland would virtualize apps for Windows, Windows NT, and Unix, which was interesting. I don't I don't want to peek my microphone, but I just want I want you to know Deep down, I have a whole hyena laugh sound that wants to come out of my body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, this report was really interesting. They sourced the information from people working inside of Apple and some developers who had been given early access to the operating system. And the report said that the CEO, Emilio, reportedly tried to create a licensing deal with Microsoft so that Copeland with a Windows VM could be pre-installed on Macs or that uh, Mac servers could run Windows NT software, which would have been that that would have that would have been something. Yeah, no kidding. To me, that sounds exactly like what you should not do, because that's what IBM tried to do with OS2, where 
they realized that everyone was only making software for Windows. So their solution was to make an environment for running Windows apps under OS2. So then no one made OS2 apps. Because <laughs> it, it, sounds, it sounds like such a great idea in the abstract. Because you're like, look at all these apps. If they could run it on our thing, that would make our thing better. Yes, but then no one will buy your thing. Because it does it. You can just do it all on the thing that they already have. Apple's strategy here was also to try to get Macs into the server space. Well, I I don't know. I could kind of see that. Uh, all right. It, it kind of comes from two perspectives on this or two thoughts. Uh, one, let, let me quickly ask, how long had Gil been CEO at this point? A few months. Yeah, that I have a feeling that that was him walking in the door and saying, you know what? let's let's find this thing that we're bad at let's find a weakness Mm -hmm. and let's target it because by targeting that weakness we will become we will become the company that is great at this thing and that never works it's a great idea it sounds wonderful from like a personal growth perspective but it's a terrible strategy for a company it never works the other aspect of it i i would tend to think is There was no OS that was coming out that was really good to use as a personal OS and also as a server. And I think what they're probably trying to do is try to bridge that gap in a way that would have made a lot of sense to to somebody who's trying to uh, trying to accomplish kind of lightweight server stuff. Uh, Not that there was such a thing at the time, but we can pretend. So I get it. I don't think it was a good strategy, but I get it. Yeah. So it was around this time that Emilio believed Copeland would just never be completed. Like he just, he he came to the correct conclusion that Apple could not build an operating system from scratch. So as a result of this, Apple started to look for an operating system to purchase because if, if you can't make something, then you go out and, and buy it. So, while Apple started the search for an operating system to buy, Emilio had Ellen Hancock work on an update to System 7, which was called System 7.7 at the time, and but it was later renamed to Mac OS 8, which is where the, the confusion lies between <laughs> these two very different things that had the same name. Yeah. So the goal of the goal of System 7.7 was to bring some Copeland features to the existing Mac operating system. The name change had an unintended side effect where it allowed Apple to renegotiate licensing deals with Mac clone manufacturers because all the existing deals were specifically for system seven. So Mm. with system, with system eight, they could, they could renegotiate those contracts and make them better for Apple. Because again, Emilio's goal here is to make Apple not lose money as much. One of the operating systems Emilio looks at, funny enough, is actually Windows NT. So for anyone who who doesn't know, Windows NT was different from normal Windows at this time. It had a more modern kernel that didn't have any of the DOS pieces that the normal Windows operating system had at the time. Uh, Windows NT was already working on PowerPC workstations. So really all Apple would have to do is make a Mac-like interface. And then they could put it on the Mac, and that would that would be their new operating system. And theoretically, such an OS could also support Intel x86 chips 
and run Windows programs. Maybe Apple would have shifted into the software space and you could just install the Mac OS on a PC and it would, you know, it'd be Windows underneath, but it would look like a Mac. It would have made sense and probably been a really smart move at that time. Yeah. Some of this comes from a book that Emilio wrote. So, you know, there's no other sources for this. Supposedly, Emilio called Bill Gates uh, and told him about what he wanted to do. And Bill Gates promised to assign hundreds of Microsoft engineers to start porting Apple's QuickDraw graphics library, which was how Mac apps sort of showed uh, windows and buttons and everything. Um, and that would be ported to Windows NT. So Bill Gates was like super on board, which, you know, I you he would be because he oh, yeah. would have no more competition <laughs> anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only does it remove competition, it also it expands it expands the footprint of your own software in a way that uh developers are going to be looking at and saying all right hey we can we can firmly get on the ground with this and just target one thing that would have been great emilio totally recognized that it would give microsoft essentially full control over the pc industry but again like his goal there was to make apple money and here was a proven operating system that would, in theory, require minimal work to get mm-hmm. running on the Mac. Well, minimal work, except for hundreds of Microsoft employees. Right. However, one little issue does come up in this plan where some Apple engineers believe that porting Windows NT to the Mac would require some significant changes related to like memory requirements. Those changes could have decreased performance. And that was the moment where Emilio was like, okay, I need to look somewhere else. Because, you know, mm-hmm. if, he, if he goes through all of this and, and gives up control of the Mac platform, essentially, and then in the end, they still don't have like the perfect OS they're looking for, then that's, pro- there's, that's probably not a good idea. Well, perfect is the enemy of good. I'm not sure that's even the expression, but we're going <laughs> to use it. So another company Apple looks at buying is B Inc., which was founded by former Apple staff. And for the past few years, they had been working on a operating system. That was almost exactly what Apple needed. BOS supported protected memory, virtual memory. It had an object oriented design, which as you remember was one of the big selling points for Taligent. Um, and it had actually just added power Mac support, basically just to make itself more valuable to Apple. Um, like some BOS engineers did a demo to Apple executives and that demo was running on just an unmodified Mac. Mm -hmm. Uh, But BOS had issues too. It had no file sharing support. It had no printer drivers. There were still no computers at this time being sold with BOS. It was sort of what Apple needed, but it was also going to be more work. Apple expected that they could buy B inc for around 50 million but the board at b inc wanted shares worth 15 percent of apple which was valued around 500 million mm-hmm. so there was that's a that's a big gap between 50 and 500 million a little uh, bit yeah so apple pushed back basically pointing out that bos didn't it was not a finished product <laughs> like you can't you can't charge me this much money for something i that's not done so 
Also, during this time, Apple looked into buying Solaris from Sun Microsystems. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So, because Solaris had a really solid technical foundation that Apple could use, however, if they bought Solaris, they would have essentially had to create the whole interface from scratch because Solaris was very bare bones in the UI department. Gil Emilio didn't have much interest in going that route, but um, Ellen Hancock was brought it up multiple times throughout this process. She was she really wanted that to happen. That didn't get very far. Also during this time, Next was being considered because Next had a modern operating system with a kernel called Mock that could easily be ported to different architectures. So I, I believe during this time it didn't work on PowerPC, but because of that modern kernel, it could be ported without a lot of effort. Right. So eventually they narrowed down the options and Apple executives decided as next and B as really the only two options they could go for. And Apple booked meetings with Steve Jobs from next and John Louis, who was working at uh, B Inc at the time. So I'm going to send you a passage from Gil Emilio's book about these meetings and you can, you can read it for the class. With the press so avidly following the story, the Apple campus was much too visible a place for the shootout. We booked the upstairs meeting room at the Garden Court Hotel in Palo Alto. Steve Jobs would present on the afternoon of Tuesday, December 10th, and John Luis would follow. Steve's sales pitch on the next operating system was dazzling. He held nothing back and praised the virtues and strengths as though he were describing a performance of Olivier as Macbeth. Uh, really quick, just to say, I mean, it's Steve Jobs. The mm -hmm. the guy knew how to sell stuff. That was, yeah. that was his calling in life. This was a different Steve. Pragmatic, specific, precise. A sharp contrast to the man who had been selling himself to me on that first occasion. More than a year earlier when he had come to National Semiconductor, cajoling me to support him for the post of Apple's CEO. This time he knew exactly what he was talking about. He made listening very easy and I was impressed. Then Steve turned the floor over to Avi Tavanian, who he had brought along to handle the technical explanations. Smart decision, since Steve's technical understanding only goes a micron deep. Harsh. <laughs> And Avi had a laptop with him so he could demonstrate the software, showing it as a working OS, not just a concept. Steve's only setback came when senior engineer Muretsky asked questions revealing some shortcomings for Apple in using the next software, but Steve recovered quickly and made light of the issues. Between them, Avi and Steve were a very compelling duo. John Luis appearing as Act 2, made a grave miscalculation, for which Ellen and I may bear at least part of the responsibility. He did not understand that this was a shootout, or else still thought he had the decision locked up, even though stories had been appearing in the papers for 10 days about my conversations with Steve. He came alone, and he came with nothing in his hands. He said, in effect, your technical people have met with my technical people, so you know the strengths of our solution. There was no formal presentation, no technical discussion, not even a sales pitch. He seemed to assume it was obvious his answer was the best, and he already had the order. So why waste time explaining it? Everything pointed towards Steve Jobs and next. So John Luis had made it a no contest. 
the vote for next was almost a foregone conclusion. So I know this may not be the, the key takeaway, but one thing stands out to me. They mention how, how the meeting with Steve Jobs had been in the papers. Here's the thing. At that time in history, there was no tech press. Not really. I mean, it existed. There were magazines and there there were occasionally like, you know, local newspapers would cover this kind of thing. But it's not like it's not like they had blogs. They did not have uh, they didn't have like news sites stalking every move that people made. Like a CEO was not going to hear this stuff necessarily unless unless they had spies or somebody in the company like actively told him, oh, hey, look at what I read. Chances are this guy does not follow this stuff. He doesn't he doesn't read these details. So, yeah, he walked in probably very clueless about it. Yeah. After that meeting, Apple announces in December of 1996 that it will purchase Next Software for 400 million like that was close to what b inc proposed initially so it was expensive but gil Emilio sold the higher purchase price as uh you know they were getting a complete operating system next had already been shipping on computers for a while it wasn't like a in progress piece of software they also got steve jobs back of course and they the purchase would give Apple 50 million in revenue per year from all the products Next was already selling. So that that made it easier to swallow the higher amount compared to B, which wasn't selling anything at the time. It didn't have a full OS. They didn't have Steve Jobs either. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's where we're going to leave it for this episode and we'll go into what happens with Apple and Next in the next part of the Road to OS X.